Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Welcome to episode 52 of the Muddy Tree Investing Podcast. Hey, everybody, I'm Joe Saul Sehi from Stacking Benjamins, and I am in the driver's seat today, which means we're going to have some fun, aren't we? So sit back and relax because on this episode, we're taking things a little different. We're going to talk about franchising. And why franchising? Well, there's lots of ways to invest money, isn't there? First of all, there are passive investments. Second, there's investing in yourself. But third, I thought, what about investing in a business? What's that all about? And there are people out there that are friends of mine, frankly, who own lots of businesses. And they will tell you that that is an investment. So I've always wondered, what's it like to own a franchise? So we're going to talk about that on today's show. Let's go. Nestle Tollhouse Cafe by Chip franchises nearly 150 bakery cafes in the USA, Canada, and the Middle East. They've been recognized by Entrepreneur Magazine's Franchise 500 for the last nine consecutive years through 2015. And Scott McIntosh, who's the Vice President of Franchise Development at Nestle Tollhouse Cafe by Chip, joins us. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much, Joe. Glad to be here. Well, I know, Scott, how you made the, the list, the Franchise 500. You bribe them with that smell, don't you? That's how you get listed. You know, it never fails. I can get on lists and I can typically get upgraded on my flights when I <laughs> deliver cookies. Well, I was going to say, you either bribe them with the smell or you bribe them by saying, I'll never take the smell away. Cause That's I, right. <laughs> I would weigh 700 pounds. It's, it's funny because my wife, Cheryl, was excited about me interviewing you, but she said you needed to send samples so we could get a real feel for it first. Absolutely. Nothing is better than a Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookie uh, in a 12-inch square. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, as, as you know, Scott, we talk investing on this show. And, if, and when it comes to being a franchisee, when you look for the right franchisee, what type of investor are you looking for when you're out there searching? You know, specifically, we look for people who have a passion for our brand. Uh, it's It's quite frankly, easy to find people that have some type of association with Nestle or Toll House or any of the delicious products that they produce. Uh, we want to find individuals that want to work in the business, uh, not really looking at it as a passive investor, but, but somebody that is passionate about our concept, about our offering, uh, and want to be part of our growing franchise. So this is really, I mean, this is not like a stock where you just, you're, you want, so you don't want somebody who's not going to be on site? Well, not necessarily needing to be on site, but there's kind of two things between working in the business and working on the business. Uh, we want individuals that are going to have an active role in the business. And that doesn't necessarily mean standing behind the counter for eight hours a day baking cookies, although that's a fun part of our business, uh, but someone that's going to be actively engaged in it. Uh, specifically, you know, individuals that own cafes in Texas, not operating cafes in Oregon. That's, that's going to be uh -huh. difficult to, to be actively engaged in. Uh, but if a large percentage of our franchise owners own multiple cafes, and with that, you can't be in all places at one time. It seems like as a franchisee, you're walking this fine line between being the boss and also being a good franchisee. Is there a certain temperament, a certain type of person that it's best for? I haven't found an individual that was the perfect fit <laughs> for, for any concept. There's always a, a ebb and flow with the franchisee-franchisor relationship, just like there's an ebb and flow with the employer-employee relationship. Um, so our, our concept is, is not difficult to operate. I don't need people with culinary backgrounds or, quite frankly, even a ton of restaurant experience. Uh, it is a good fit for individuals that this may be their first stab in food service or even entrepreneurship. And let's be clear, that's the upside of becoming a franchisee, right? We, we don't have to write the book. As you mentioned, I don't need culinary experience. You're going to teach all that. How does training work? Our training is 11 days on site in our corporate office and our training facility here in Dallas, Texas. And then we have five days worth of training that takes place at grand opening of the cafe. 
then, of course, ongoing modules, whether it be uh, training material from our intranet site or just hands-on training with our franchise service consultants uh, who, who basically hold the hands of our franchise operators uh, and help them run their business. If I'm comparing franchises, is, is that fairly standard? I mean, should I expect if I'm going to be, uh, if I'm hoping to become a franchisee, Scott, should I expect that level of training? You, you would hope so. Uh, and of course, the, the, the difference being the franchisors that talk to talk and the franchisors that walk to walk. So, you know, everybody puts forth a, a, a good face uh, in what they plan to do through the life of the relationship. Uh, it, it's the, the difference is people that actually do that. Well, how do I, how do I find out which is which? Do, do I go talk to other franchisees? Absolutely. If I'm doing, yeah. Absolutely. You know, the, one of the most critical steps in any franchise discovery process, and, and when people are shopping to, to pick out the perfect franchise for themselves, franchisors are also shopping to pick out the perfect franchisees for themselves. But one of the crucial states is what we refer to as, uh, as validation uh, and calling existing franchise operators and having conversations that, you know, not only are about the dollars and cents of operating the franchise, but also the relationship that they have between franchisor and franchisee, uh, you know, the good, the bad and the indifferent. We talked, we talked a little bit about who the right person is. Is there a type of person that you've met where you're, where you just think, no, 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 this isn't for you. I guess besides the person who just doesn't want to be hands-on. Absolutely. That people specifically who, that, that lack the ability to train, to motivate, to empathize, uh, you know, our business is a people business. And, you know, I like to say that, you know, individuals coming into our cafes, if, if they weren't in a good mood when they walked in, typically they are when they walk out. Uh, who doesn't like an indulgent treat to, to put a smile on their face? But with that, I need operators that have the ability to inspire their employees to deliver world-class customer service. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm lending, lending them a, you know, a $250 billion international brand that they get to plug on their front door. There's no stress there. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> How much room is there for creativity then if I'm a franchise? Because you're giving me training, you're giving me the book, but also, you know, if I've got promotions that I want to do myself, some good ideas that I think are going to work locally, is there any room for that with Nestle or with franchising in general? Absolutely. We, we have a process in place of where our operators or franchise partners can request to test certain items uh, things that may have worked well in their area. I mean, I'm interestingly enough in the Dallas market, and it's funny to see cafes on the east side of the Dallas market compared to the cafes on the west side of the Dallas market. There are almost regional tastes inside of that area. Really? Uh, so you can imagine that on a grander scale, whether it be in the U.S., Canada, or even in our cafes in the Middle East. The beauty of it is, is I have the research and development arm of Nestle in my back pocket. So there shouldn't be a ton of R&D that needs to be done by our operators, but we are certainly open for those type of conversations. If there is a better way of doing something or a, a better item that we can bring to the table, we want to we look at it and see if we can implement it nationwide. Interestingly enough, you know, something as simple as a brownie. Uh, Nestle did not create a brownie when we started our franchise concept. So Nestle had to go and create from scratch a brownie program uh, for us to implement it in our cafes. That's that's really interesting. <laughs> I can't believe that your your cafes would because that seems to be the cornerstone. Absolutely, you know Nestle's bakery or their baked goods area is second to none. Uh, but once again, they just didn't have that specific product, and we demanded it as a franchise system. So they went out and created it for us and, uh, and we love it. On that note, when you talk about regional differences and just differences, even in, in just one side of Dallas and the other side of Dallas versus Dallas in the middle East, is there ever a, a time that, that franchisees get together and swap notes? I know that, or do they have a forum where they do that? Because I know as a, uh, you know, just in podcasting, I've got this mastermind group of podcasters that I meet with once a month and that really helps. You bet. We have a franchise advisory board in our system, and this board is com comprised of franchise owners who, first and foremost, 
raised their hand that they wanted to be on the board and then, of course, were voted into that position. Uh, and in addition to the having regional meetings, we have an, an annual conference that we bring all of our franchise partners from all over the U.S., Canada, and the Middle East together to learn, to share best practices, uh, and also to, to help us take the brand in the direction that the, our franchise partners would like us to do. That seems like another thing, though, Scott, that, that very good franchises are going to do and a question people should ask. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we truly, <laughs> truly believe that our franchise partners are smarter than we are. So uh, taking that collective brain power all the way down to the committee level, uh, anytime that we want to implement some type of a change, we, we test things to a great degree, uh, but also have committees of individuals that may be in their background prior to their days as a, a franchise partner of Nestle had a spe specific skill set that would help us you know, make a better decision for the, for the collective group. Oh, that's cool. Am, am, am I picking out my own location or am I picking from a list of potential places that you've already scouted? Who does the homework on real estate? Is it you or the franchisee? You know, we do it together. So I am, I guess I have the pleasure of being inundated by developers of real estate all over the country. And that could be shopping malls, that could be airports, that could be street locations and oh, gray I didn't areas. Think, I didn't think about that. They're, they're recruiting you. They're trying to get you to come to their, to their. Absolutely. Ah. Absolutely. So they're coming to me because they look at Nestle as a brand that they would like to have in their center. Uh, but of course they may be in Kansas and I may not have the perfect operator identified in Kansas. So for instances of where I don't have a database of real estate that's readily available, myself, our director of real estate, and our franchise partners go out and find locations together. Uh, at the end of the day, I need my franchise partner to love the location. I need them to be invested in the location. Uh, and I prefer to be very close proximity to where they live or at least where they, they interact so that they can become part of that community from a business standpoint. But that, that process is collaborative. Uh, we assist our franchise partners in the site selection, in the lease negotiation, every step of the way until we, we get the cafe open for business. There's one in uh, Strombrier Mall in uh, Frisco, isn't there? Stonebriar, absolutely. Stonebriar actually was the very first cafe that opened back in 2000. Was it really? That's absolutely. That's interesting. I didn't mean to, my, my our <laughs> listeners are going, why'd you get so damn specific right there? But, <laughs> but the reason I ask is that, is, is, is that type of a location, which is right in the center of, of the mall. I mean, literally, I think it's right in the center of the mall on the second floor. Is, is that kind of the type of location you're looking for in a mall location or an area where there's a lot of other retail around it? Actually, Joe, the location is on the ground level of the Stonebriar Mall, and uh, we have a we have an inline cafe, and then we also have a what we refer to as a satellite location, which is a small kiosk. Uh, and interestingly enough, that kiosk is positioned within a stone's throw of the Apple Store, which you know, in most uh, any regional enclosed shopping mall, that's probably the busiest retailer there. Uh, Stonebriar is a great example. That is a powerhouse of a shopping mall. Uh, they do an incredible job driving traffic to the location. And if I could, pardon the pun, cookie cutter that type of operation all the way over, the, <laughs> all the way throughout the country, I'd be a happy man. Yeah. So, but those types, and, and you know why I forgot first floor, second floor is I haven't been there in, I'm going to say it's been a good 18 months. And uh, I, I, I smell that smell and it's like the, the, the swan song. I want to, I want to stay away. <laughs> you bet. It's funny. I, I was down in our Houston market not too long ago, and we've got a great number of cafes inside the Houston Galleria. I think we're on our fourth one uh, inside that mall specifically. It's just that big, and that operator is just that aggressive. Uh, but you can literally smell the cookies baking before you can see the location, and I can almost sniff it out from a uh, at least a hundred yards away. <laughs> that's that's what I was going to say. Was that when you were when you were saying four locations of one mall? I'm sure there's a lot of people going four locations of one mall. You must be all over it. I think those people have no idea just how huge 
that that place. I couldn't believe how huge that place was. In it's history. giant. Yeah, absolutely. It's giant. So, you know, I, even the Stonebriar Mall is a, is a giant shopping center. Not only is it multi-level, but, you know, literally it, it feels like it's a mile from one end to the other. And in those type scenarios where I can can put multiple cafes and capture different guests because it is unusual for an individual to walk into a shopping mall like that and literally canvas the entire center, upstairs, downstairs, every wing. So having multiple locations strategically placed inside that shopping center is, is not a bad idea, uh, specifically if I can keep out competitors by doing so. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I was going to ask you about that too, Scott, which is, you know, in, in some businesses, it makes sense for a, a person, for a franchisee to have a region where they know they're going to be the only person within X number of miles. With with your Tollhouse Cafes, does that matter as much? Do you do something like that where if I have the Stonebriar location that I know there's not going to be another Tollhouse Cafe within a five-mile radius? Or if there is, I'm the one that gets to open them? You know, we do not. We don't do arbitrary radiuses around our cafes, specifically because we are in locations that are entities unto themselves. Uh So Stonebriar is a perfect example. If a cafe was a couple of miles down the road, chances are those two would never interact with one another. Uh, A specific guest has gone to the Stonebriar Cafe, or excuse me, Stonebriar Mall, and I wish they were coming there for me, but in most instances, (laughs) it is an impulse purchase. Uh, They are walking by, they smell the cookies, they see the ice cream, they, they want a drink. Uh, and they stop and make that buying decision. Uh, so with that said, there, there isn't a lot of a need of that, unlike a full-scale restaurant where you are your own destination. Yeah. Let's let's jump to the, the money part since this is an investing show. We should probably do that, shouldn't we? First, the, <laughs> the returns. Can I make enough with one location to support myself, or is it a good idea for uh, somebody to own multiple locations? You know, in franchising, the the beauty of it is is that everybody's expectations is a little bit different. Uh, We have a large number of individuals that own a single cafe. They operate that cafe and and literally are the face of it and and live a happy life. Uh, I also have individuals that own multiple cafes as well as multiple franchises. Not only do they own Nestle Tollhouse Cafe franchises, they own other businesses, whether it's in the same shopping center or the same area, and, and, I, and those people net a different result. Yeah, can I ask you something right there? There's no, yeah. y- you have no restriction there where somebody, if they own a Nestle Cafe, I'm not signing something with you that that, that, that prohibits me from owning other franchises? You know, we don't want you to own a direct competitor. And what I mean by that is somebody <laughs> else that specializes in in baked cookies and sweets, but I I will say a a large number of our operators have, you know, co-branded locations as I refer to them as. So maybe they have a shared piece of real estate inside of a shopping center and half of it is a Nestle and half of it is something else. And that something else typically may be a pretzel use, a cinnamon roll use, even an ice cream or frozen yogurt use. Uh, And we have open relationships with our franchise partners. So if that co-branded or them operating multiple franchises puts them in a better position to be successful, then I'm all on board for it. And then uh, uh, how much money does it cost generally for somebody to open a location? I know there's, there's you know, the cost of the, of the build-out, I'm sure, and there's probably a franchise fee. How does that work? You bet. We have three specific models of cafes that we traditionally build. The first one being a kiosk, and this is a fully functional baking kiosk that has our full menu assortment that's, that's positioned in the center of a shopping area. I like to be in center court of shopping malls where I can be kind of the the hub or the destination. Uh, A kiosk traditionally cost anywhere on the low end about $130,000, on the high end about $230,000. And that varying price difference is all-inclusive. That's the franchise fee, that's the fixture, that's the equipment, that's the, the initial inventory. The difference between the high and the low is what did it cost to get the space prepared for me? And then what does the remote storage situation look like? So am I building out in 200 square feet? Am I in 300 square feet? 
Did I need to bring utilities and plumbing from you know, 50 yards away or was it already there? So, you know, the kiosk is a, a great model for someone that, that wants to get in at a cheaper cost of entry. Our next two cafes actually build out and cost about the exact same. And that's a, an inline mall cafe. And that's a cafe that's built into the main structure of the shopping mall where you're walking down the aisle and you see businesses on the left and the right. And then, of course, street cafes. And those are the ones that may be in strip shopping centers. These may be ones that are in the new outdoor lifestyle centers or outlet malls. And that investment ranges from on the low end about 120, 130 as well to the high end upwards of 430. And that varies depending upon the condition of the space when I arrived and how large it is. I can build cafes that are 300 square feet. I can build cafes that are 1,300 square feet, none of which you know, create a, a busier location. Uh, it's just what was available in that area at that moment as it related to the real estate. I'm sure there's there's two different types of owners. There's There's an owner that can come you know, with, with, with cash to the table, but there's a lot of people out there. I know a lot of times there's people that are hardworking. They have a, they have a good background, uh, but they don't have that kind of money. I know there's, there's some franchises that, that do in-house financing or have partnerships with banks where they help them get that financing. How does that work with Nestle? You bet. We don't do any in-house financing on new construction. However, we are on the SBA registry. And what that basically means is that every year I send my franchise agreement and franchise disclosure document to the SBA to allow them to pre-screen it, if you would, uh, ask me to make any changes that would make it easier for them to loan money to a potential franchisee. And I do that. I make those changes to make the SBA happy. Uh, and that creates a fast track program for my potential franchisees. Uh, when it comes to banking relationships, because we are nationwide, we've got lenders all over the place that have in the past loaned money to Nestle franchisees or who are actively pursuing Nestle Toll House Cafe franchisees to loan money on projects. Uh, and, and literally in the course of, of any given week, I, I probably get documents from lenders for us to certify uh, goodness, a, a couple of weeks. So it's very common for franchise partners to, to take out small business loans to fund their cafe. Are those those SBA loans? Are those at a at a at a fixed rate? Is that at a rate currently that you know what it is? You know, I don't because it varies a little bit upon the the credit worthiness yep. of the borrower and okay. of course their down payment. Uh, basically, what the SBA does, they're not loaning money; they're 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 insuring the loan for a local bank. Uh, and that bank could be, you know, the bank that they do business with to begin with, or it could be a bank that they've never done business with who specializes in either restaurant franchising or, or, or you know, any type of small business lending. Uh, and we help our franchise partners navigate those waters because I kind of assume that they've never done it before. Uh, we also find ourselves in scenarios, and I'll kind of revert back to the real estate question, where I get landlord partners who want to make a capital injection into the business for the franchisee. Uh, specifically, just last year, I had a landlord of 18 properties come to me, and they wanted a center court Nestle Toll House Cafe kiosk so badly that they put in $120,000 of the build-out cost on wow. behalf of the franchise partner. So literally, the franchise partner was able to get into business for $50,000, you know, $70,000, depending upon the, the location, and uh, it, it certainly made that ease of, of getting in the business much easier. Uh, I have four other landlord partners that I have met with this this year who want to to create some type of deal similar to that uh, based off the success that I had with with the originator of that type of deal. Have you found that it's been harder for people to get uh, financing through banks, though, since the 2007-2008 banking uh, crisis? You know, it got real tough there for what felt like a real long time. And, you know, the, when the credit markets froze, franchisors such as ourselves were, were really quite frankly, the first ones to feel that pinch 
but I am telling today and then in the past, goodness, 14 to, to 16 months, uh, it, it's almost like the floodgates have turned back on. It's coming back. Uh, and I, absolutely. And coming back stronger you know, than I had seen, I felt, back in 2008. So uh, it, it feels like those markets are opening back up, at least for my concept uh, I, I'm seeing some real successes with lenders. It seems to me too, d- d- Scott, that, uh, that, you know, bankers more likely to give you money if they know that there's a franchise system behind you that's already been proven in other locations. You bet. Yeah. And the, the, the registry part of the, the lending helps them with the paperwork. So they know they don't have to jump through a ton of red tape right. to get the SBA to buy off on the loan. Uh, but uh, you, you nailed it. A, a bank that has had a successful track record with operators of any franchise concept right. uh, typically want to do more of those deals. If they're seeing the returns, they're all for it. If, if somebody's out there looking at franchises and franchise systems, there's some things, you know, without naming names, I want to ask you to, to, to name the competitors of yours that you just can't stand. But, but, <laughs> but are there some systems out there that you've seen or some things that you've read about where, you know, somebody who's a neophyte, and as you mentioned before, most people listening to this have never done this before, probably their first, their first foray into franchising. Is there stuff they should really stay away from or clues of things that are really, um, you know, where somebody's looking down the wrong alley? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the beauty of franchising is that the Federal Trade Commission requires each franchisor to create a franchise disclosure document, as we refer to as our FDD. And we update this document every year, and the formatting of the document is identical. So it doesn't matter if you are looking at a Nestle Tollhouse Cafe, a Subway, or a Supercut. None of these businesses are similar but the formatting of the FDD is identical. So you can truly compare apples and oranges and someone who hasn't done it before, once they've looked at one FDD, they've looked at a dozen because they're all the same. Uh, A couple of hot topics that I encourage people to look at, first and foremost, is in a topic called the item eight. And the item eight has a uh, a couple of sentences hidden into what what is literally a 300-page document. Ouch. And that, that yeah, that, those sentences revolve around revenues derived from franchisee purchases. And literally, that is rebates or kickbacks from suppliers. Uh, and I'm in the food business. I, I, I kind of take this one close to heart uh, there are franchise concepts out there that you look at that little section in item eight and, you know, they may derive a fraction of a percent and they book that fraction of a percent in rebate dollars towards R&D or, or what have you. That That's normal. Uh, I see franchise concepts and I'm included that takes that fraction of a percent and literally deposits it into our marketing fund which is is for our franchise partners. They spend that marketing fund dollars on national promotions, things mm-hmm. that are going to happen that affect the entire systems. But then you come across concepts that literally have a large percentage of revenue coming in as rebate dollars. Uh, and that's, to me, that's double dipping in royalties. Uh-huh. If you're going to charge a royalty, charge a royalty. If you're not going to charge a royalty or lower your royalty, then don't make it up under the table from rebate purchases. So that, that's just something that, that kind of irks me in, in my category. Uh, the second thing to look at is in the item 20. Uh, in the item 20 has the listing of locations and what's been going on with those locations for the previous three years. So you can see how many locations that are opened, how many locations have closed, how many locations transferred, and then how many locations were acquired by the franchisor. Uh, And there's no real secret magic to that number. It's just if something looks odd to you, if a lot of locations close that year, if a lot of locations transferred or if the corporation or the franchisor acquired a bunch of locations, that's things that you want to ask about. You want to find out what was going on at that moment in time uh, that caused that event to happen. 
you should expect with any franchise system for there to be opens, there should be closures, and there should be transfers. Sure. It should not be a large percentage of the franchisee <laughs> base. Uh, and, and you see that sometimes. It's interesting. Well, that's fantastic. Those are great questions to ask. And, and, and I like what you said there that there's no magic number, but certainly you, you, you need to get as many clues about what's going on as, as possible and not just take somebody's word for it. You bet. You bet. And, you know, franchisors are, I look at the relationship of, of the franchise is not unlike getting married. Uh, and, and Joe, I don't think you married the first girl you went out on the date with. So uh, it, it's not unusual to date around a little bit before you find the perfect one. That's, that's a great, that's a great analogy. And, and, and by the way, something else, and I want to get back to this, you know, you mentioned supercuts and, uh, and you know, supercuts and, and Toll House cafes, that could be a good one, two punch right there. Get your hair cut and get a cookie. Next door to them any day. That's right. Just don't get the hair and the cookies. That's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, How do people get more information, especially about Nestle Tollhouse Cafe? If somebody heard this and they want more, where do they go? Absolutely. They can, of course, go to our website, which is nestlecafe.com. I have a vast amount of information provided on our website And by filling out the express request form, it unlocks a hidden part of our website, which is only for potential franchisees. Uh, They, of course, can contact our offices, and our phone number is 214-495-9533. And any of my franchise development team, including myself, would be glad to help you learn more. Well, that's fantastic, Scott. Thanks thanks a ton for sharing stuff with us because this is, you know, especially for the people that we talk to that are interested in investing. Investing in a franchise is, a for a lot of us, a whole new world, and it's really cool to get a look behind the scenes. If, if there's, I guess my last question is this, if, the, you know, every every type of investment has, there are these misconceptions about them, right? Things that, 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 that investors in that area hear over and over, and it's like nails in a chalkboard. When it comes to, to your business and franchising, uh, what would you say is that big misconception that you'd like to clear up right now? You know, that it's, that it's easy. Uh, the, the part of owning and operating your own business, although it is very rewarding, it's not easy. And you're a finance show. It's not like the stock market. You don't put your money in and sit back and watch what happens. And short of when to buy and when to sell, you have zero control of what's taking place. With a franchise investment, you are 100% in control. And although the real estate makes a huge difference, the operation of that business makes an even greater impact. So, you know, once again, I can't, you know, harp it enough. Being involved in your franchise, no matter what it is, Find something that you're passionate about so it makes it easier for you to be involved in. If you love cutting hair, then buying a Nestle Tollhouse Cafe is probably not the perfect franchise <laughs> for you. Uh, one of the concepts we spoke about a minute ago may be a better fit. Uh, but, but being involved in this business can, be the, can make the difference between a, a wildly successful investment or one that will take you to the bank in a bad way. Uh, and we think that franchisees are, are truly the, 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 the stewards of our brand, uh, and we want to do everything we can to help them be successful, but they've got to want it more than I do. All right, and for the second half of our show, let's welcome back our panel of participants, and let's go from my left to right on my screen here on Skype. We'll start off with Andrea Trevilian from TakeASmartStep.com. Welcome back, Andrea. Why, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm sure it is. We won't tell everybody you just yawned before we started. <laughs> well, I mean, it's early. It's only 10 15. <laughs> yeah, you can. the motor doesn't start running until one. What are we doing? That's right. And next to Andrea on my screen from Investing for Beginners is Mr. Andrew Sather. What's up, Joe? Hey, welcome back to you. Thank you. Know, you. Listeners missed you. I bet. I'm sure they cried the whole time. They just skipped those two episodes and waited for me, I'm sure. <laughs> right. And then the person who is never in one place for very long, but actually, I think she set down roots. It's Miranda Marquit from Planting Money Seeds. Yay. I've planted myself 
here. It's exciting. This is the second week in a row I've been in the same place, and I might be in the same place for the foreseeable future. It's very exciting. I think there's some kind of pun around planted yourself in Idaho, like the whole Idaho potato thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're actually the gem state, Uh, but we are famous for potatoes. They put potatoes on our license plates. I don't know why. When I ran the Pocatello Marathon at the end of the race, they gave us a sack of potatoes. That's hilarious. It was awesome. And I was getting on the plane, so I had to give them back. But man, they were huge. They were awesome. Well, yeah, you, yeah. A bag of potatoes can't be your carry-on? <laughs> Maybe. Why not? Because <laughs> it's so heavy. A big bag of potatoes is like 10 pounds. Yeah. Are you allowed to carry potatoes across state? I don't know. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. doing it. Come on. Well, we've got plenty of time to talk potatoes. Today, we have to talk Nestle Toll House cookies. How does that sound? Even better. I know. Well, let's talk not just about Nestle. Let's talk about franchising in general, guys. Owning a franchise. Have you ever thought of owning a franchise as a business? I guess let's start there. Andrea, have you? Yeah. In fact, about 10 years ago, we went through a process of analyzing a whole bunch of franchises. Oh, so you've really dug into this topic before. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's good. Andrew, have you? Personally, I haven't. I think when you talk about Owning a franchise, I think it is a business because you're not just trying to make an investment. It's not something that can be passive. You're almost creating a job for yourself. So in that sense, yeah, it is a business. Yeah. And Miranda, have you ever considered owning a franchise? Yeah, I've actually thought about it. If I were going to do like a brick and mortar store, the idea of owning a franchise is a little bit more attractive than maybe starting from scratch. So I've thought about it, but owning a brick and mortar type store in general is not something that I would generally do. And I also not only thought about owning a franchise, I did own a franchise. My financial planning business was actually a franchise of Ameriprise. So when I sold it, there were some restrictions. We can talk stuff about that too. We should just have you. We should just be interviewing you now. (laughs) I don't know about that. But let's dig into this piece about the business first, and then I want to get to it as an investment. Andrea, why was it that you were looking at franchises versus starting your own brick and mortar store? Well, we were looking at franchises because it is an easy way to get a business up and running. And when I say easy, I mean like you don't have to plan out the marketing and the logistics and all that stuff. So it's kind of turnkey in that sense, which is why we were looking at a franchise. We ended up not going with one because the only one we wanted to invest in, we just didn't have the capital for that at that point. But the other thing that really stood out to us is we didn't control anything. And I like to control everything. (laughs) I'm laughing because that's so true. It is so true. So (laughs) franchising was not for us. (laughs) It might have been for your husband, but not for you. And in fact, he himself has separately looked at franchises since then because there's benefits. They're just not for me. Got it. And Miranda, what Andrea is talking about, is that kind of why what you were alluding to was that, that somebody would have a book printed out that you can just follow the steps? Yeah. So one of the things with doing a brick and mortar business, one of the advantages of having a franchise is that everything is laid out for you. And not only that, but you end up with a recognized name. You yeah. know, people know people know Subway, people know McDonald's, people know Nestle Toll House Cookies. There's a whole bunch of these names that are recognized. So you don't have to do the legwork of trying to make your name recognizable. And then just having that handbook laid out for you. The control aspect can be daunting, as Andrea pointed out. But at the same time, since I'm somebody who's like not big into effort, I'd kind of like that where just somebody lays it out for me and says, this is what you need to do. And so that's kind of the advantage of having a franchise. But that said, the whole brick and mortar business, you know, outside of my home business thing is really not for me because it is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort, even if you are franchising. And so that's just something. And it's a lot of expense. It's a lot of startup expense because even with a franchise, there are some franchises to buy like a McDonald's franchise. It's what, $500,000, a million dollars. And so depending on which franchise you choose, it can be very expensive and the startup costs can even be prohibitive. Yeah. Let's move into that because I want to talk about this franchising as investment, right? Not franchising as a job, but franchising as investment. Andrew, what are the upsides and downsides you see of owning a business as an investment versus buying a stock? Because with a stock, you also own the business, right? Yeah, you do in a sense. A big upside that I can think of that comes to my mind right away is 
the scalability of owning a business versus the scalability of owning a stock. So even if you pick the kind of thousand percent gainer that we see, that's this unicorn that happens once every, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Even if you do pick a stock like that, the kind of gains that you will have are not synonymous with the kind of gains you can have from having a wildly successful business. I mean, We've seen countless stories of people who have built businesses from their own kitchen table and they've been able to grow that into millions and even billions of dollars of revenue. Guys like the guys who created Snapchat are a great example. They're now, I think the founder is a 25-year-old billionaire. And so you're not going to become a billionaire out of thin air by doing stocks. That's something that you have to do as a business. And so, of course, the downside to that, obviously you can't have an upside without a downside, is the enormous amount of effort you'll have to make, whereas a stock, you can just sit back and let the business do the work for you. It's funny, Andrew, sticking with you on that point, that it seems like with franchising as the way that you own your business, it kind of mitigates both of those. Like, I don't think you're going to become a billionaire with a franchise unless you open multiple, like you see some of these McDonald's franchises that Miranda was talking about, where people own many, many McDonald's, right? You could own many franchises, but really your opportunity with owning a franchise isn't quite as high. But then also to Miranda's point that your downside also isn't as low as owning one yourself. Yeah, I think it'll come down to the numbers too. It's if you're creating positive cash flow, then obviously you can compound those and make multiple franchises and that can really provide you a lot of cash for foreseeable future. But I mean, the growth will be tough too. If you already have a dominant brand, the, the good thing is all the customers already know who you are. The downside is if customers already know how you are, how are you going to grow? Unless the population around you grows as well, it's hard for a franchisee to get that same kind of growth that you might see elsewhere. So yeah, I mean, I could see how you could take both sides. It seems like also, Andrea, that the lack of diversification you know, could be a problem. If the brand kind of goes sideways, then you're going sideways with it. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of risk in the franchise concept that people don't think about is when they're looking at it as an investment because they're thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to net all this much. But when you actually get down to the small franchises, they're making maybe a living wage. The McDonald's, the Subways, those are expensive and rare to get into. A majority of franchises, like an overwhelming majority of franchises, aren't anywhere close. You're just earning a living. Right. Which is why, really, if you're thinking about franchising and getting wealthy, I don't think that you can think about it as owning one. You really have to go into it with a mindset of owning several, don't you think? Absolutely. 100%. If you're looking at it as this is the way that I am going to build giant wealth, you need to have a territory with a good, strong, reputable franchise and not a single store of a regional franchise. Well, and Andrea, also, like as Scott mentioned, that franchise agreement really is something that you should read through very thoroughly. Exceedingly thoroughly. And then I would even say, you know, if you're seriously looking at a franchise as an investment, don't look at any franchise that doesn't have at least 50 locations. Why is that? Because majority of them don't have more locations than that. And obviously, it's been a while, and I tried to find this stat this morning, but I couldn't find it. It's something like 80% of franchises don't ever hit 50 locations. And the benefits of a franchise are that you have advertising resources, you're pooled together, it's a known name. Well, if you're entering a franchise that has 20 locations, you don't get any of those benefits and it's not scalable. So you really, to me, as a franchise, as an investment, it needs to be a large one that's scalable. Also, and you gave us, Andrea, a great thing for the resource section, which we'll link to in our show notes at moneytreepodcast.com, but selling it too. I mean, you build a business to sell, right? If you follow the E-Myth, which is a book I love, and sometimes franchises will have restrictions on how you can sell that. Talk to that for a second. Well, not only do they have restrictions, but some of them might want to just buy it back for a fraction. Some of the way that everything is worded is after 10, 20 years, it just reverts back to them. <laughs> so you've put in all these years and everything and you really, truly don't have a business. They also get say on who you sell it to. So it's not starting a business that you own, that you control and are untouchable. You are starting a business with another entity 
and they truly ultimately have all of the control. It was with Ameriprise at the time I left, and it could have changed now, but when I sold my franchise, I could set the price, so I was able to set it at the price that I thought that I could get. I could negotiate with anybody that I wanted. They obviously preferred that I sold it to another Ameriprise advisor instead of outside the system. They also, though, had one covenant, which is they could match the price and buy it themselves which I thought was a fair covenant. If I'm looking to get out of the business and I am able to set the price myself, if they want to match the price and buy it, then who am I to say no? That is a good covenant. Yeah. That one's good. Yeah. But to your point, you really have to read that because if we're talking about this as an investment and not just as buying a job, then you got to read, 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 read. Yeah. Andrew, you had something else? I'm going to say, you know, I think that's really, truly a core thing. When you are in an investment You're building that investment for your eventual retirement so you can go do what you want. When you're in a franchise and the franchisee controls when they can take back that investment, it adds an extra level of planning required on your part that you need to be aware of. And it's funny, Andrew, because I'm thinking from your value standpoint as an investor, evaluating a franchise and evaluating a stock, it seems like you're going to look at some of the same metrics, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. Like I said earlier, you'd have to look at cash flows. And obviously, you know, they're not going to give you all of those numbers straight out the bat. It might be something you have to kind of find. So in the sense of when you're buying a stock, you can see everything because the SEC regulates it and makes sure that investors have all the right information. With a franchise, you won't have that luxury. But in the same token, you can still do the same due diligence that we're talking about here. And especially if it's going to be a larger chunk of your portfolio, you'll want to proportionally spend that much more time researching than you would one stock that makes up 5% of your portfolio. Well, let's really cut to the chase here. Miranda, do you think that franchises have a place in your portfolio or are you just buying yourself a job? Personally, I think that it would be like buying yourself a job. Unless you have the assets to buy the franchise, and like Andrea mentioned earlier, buy multiple franchises and then staff them and hire managers that you trust to run them and then just wait for the money to roll in. It's basically like buying a job because you're going to have to work there and you're going to have to work hard at it. And if I'm going to buy myself a job, I'm just going to stick with the freelancing where I sit here at home and (laughs) at least I could work in my pajamas, right? (laughs) And go on vacation and work from a hotel room or work from a beach or something. You can't do that if you own a franchise. I don't know though, Nestle's Toll House Cookie in your pajamas. (laughs) <laughs> that's right. I'd rather just have get pajama to- day at work. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, so to me, it feels like any sort of brick and mortar business would be more like just buying yourself a job. It's just you're your own boss. And then you have to like manage other employees and manage your managers. And you have to know who to hire to trust if you're going to sit back and just let the money roll. To me, the dealing with the people and the dealing with all of it, it would be way too stressful and it would not be an investment as far as I am concerned. But still, if somebody doesn't already have that niche that they're working on, it could be a big opportunity. But I'm with you as a job. I have seen instances where people buy into franchises as a private non-operating partner. That turns it into an investment. Oh, so they partner with somebody else who's going to operate them and they just are the money? Yeah, I actually knew a lady who was a minority owner in a large group of McDonald's in Atlanta. And there was like six of them that owned all these locations together. And they set up, I can't remember if they were LLC or corporation, but basically she was one of the silent partners and one of the other guys actually ran it. So for her, it was legitimately an investment. She lived in Iowa. The stores were in Atlanta. Somebody else was running them and she got a check every once in a while. Do you think, Andrea, that this is similar to owning real estate properties? Because that seems to be a little bit of a job too. You know, I mean, if you own the property outright instead of through a REIT, you have to do the maintenance or hire a manager. You got to find the tenants. You got to do all the stuff. I don't know. It seems to me to be very similar. It is. It's exactly like that. You know, to make it work, you need multiple. You're working at, it is a job unless you go in as a private investor. Yeah. Andrew, does this have a place in your portfolio, you think? So for myself, I have this dream that I want to own a pizza store. There's this really cool pizza store right next to where I grew up that serves like the best Buffalo Wings. They go Buffalo Wild Wings or Wingstop. I'm telling you, they're not as good as at this particular pizza store. So if I ever become super wealthy and get to the point where 
I can buy a restaurant like that. It's not the same as a franchise, but I think somebody who's looking into franchising, if it falls in line with your passion, like if you're super passionate about Nestle cookies, I think it won't be like a job if that's something you enjoy. On the flip side, if you can do what Andrea was saying and partner up with somebody, or if you're experienced and skilled enough entrepreneur to be able to kind of release control and be able to delegate tasks to other people, then in that sense, you can own a franchise and make it as an investment if you can remove yourself from the equation. I know how much of a big control freak I am even in my own business, so I can't even imagine how hard that would be to just turn the keys over to a man, let them deal with anything, especially when it's your money and it's so much of a percentage of your net worth. But if you can master those things, and yeah, I definitely think it could have a place in your portfolio as an investment. Let's talk about one more thing before we put a lid on this episode, which is what are some of the risks you think that investors may encounter that they may not think about? I mean, one thing that I think about is the amount of debt that somebody might take on. You know, Scott and I talked about people taking out loans to afford the big downstroke to open the franchise. I think you got to look at the debt and how much debt you're taking on and how easy it'll be to pay off that debt and make a living. Miranda, what's another thought that might be something somebody should think about before jumping into franchising? I think just as far as I'm concerned, once again, it goes back to the amount of work that you realistically are going to have to put into it. Anytime you do any sort of business, whether you're franchising or not, you need to go back and look, how much work am I going to put into this? What is my potential return going to be for the work I put into it? And then especially if you're going to be in debt, can I handle that debt? And how much extra work am I going to have to put in to make sure that I can pay back that debt and turn a profit? Yeah, good point. Andrea, other downsides? You know, I actually think the biggest downside goes back to the control factor and that you're trusting somebody else to properly do what they're going to do, whether it's product development or pipeline management. An example would be long time ago, (laughs) I was in a multi-level marketing company that did wine tastings and they couldn't control their growth. And I was constantly apologizing for not being able to deliver a wine. Likewise, as a current example of a franchise, McDonald's. The franchisees are really upset. They didn't keep pace with the marketplace. Their profits are down. They're really hurting because McDonald's corporate couldn't keep up with the Paneras and the Chipotles. So, you know, you really have to look at that entire package of they're controlling your product. And that is a giant risk. Yeah, it says a lot about making sure that that partner you're getting married to, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you exactly. got to know who you're getting married to. I also think while you're talking about that, Andrea, I think because of your lack of control, you have to keep some diversification in your portfolio. I mean, if you take every dollar you have to buy into this franchise and don't have a separate retirement nest egg, you're really asking for it. Absolutely. You're really asking for it. And then kind of your second risk that goes to exactly what you're saying is more franchisees fail than the industry wants you to believe fail. So you're not going into a sure bet. So you do have to don't go all in. You're not going to go all in in one stock in the stock market. Don't go all in with a franchise. That sounds like a good question for the franchise, too, is what percentage fail? Yeah. And then you have to be careful because a lot of them won't be honest with you. Andrew, you get the last word here, man. Another downside or something to think about that maybe we haven't talked about? Can I defer it? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I think big risk is just opportunity cost. If you can figure out what the average earnings is and you can compare that to what the price is that you're going to pay and then compare that return to what you could get in the stock market, depending on what the situation is, obviously every franchise is different. You could be disappointed or you could not. So I think opportunity cost is also a risk that we don't touch on enough. Fantastic. Guys, thanks a lot for playing. Everybody will see you again next week for another exciting episode of the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Hit us up at moneytreepodcast.com if you have a question for us. Speaking of questions, on next week's show, we're going to be taking more of your questions. Those are always fun episodes. So bring them on. Head to our website, moneytreepodcast.com. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at moneytreepodcast.com for more free investing resources.